C.S. Lewis's great book, The, uh, the Great Divorce, offers this imaginative take on the afterlife. It is a work of fiction, and it imagines in the afterlife uh, a sort of state between heaven and hell where these ghost-like beings who have died take a bus ride. And near the end of that book, uh, they are at a crossroads. They get off the bus, and, and they could go over the mountains to heaven where they could get back on the bus and return to hell. And only one goes forward, the others knowing the great cost that it would take. But the one going forward has this, this red lizard on his shoulder. And the lizard uh, begins to speak to the man, berating the man, uh, whispering things that, that are tormenting him, the lizard is evil. And yet the, the man realizes at that moment that he can't enter into heaven with that lizard on his shoulder. But he's not willing to give up the lizard. And so he turns back and begins to go back to the bus. And, and an angel of the Lord comes out from the mountain to greet this ghost man. And he offers to kill the lizard. But the man can't bring himself to do it. He starts to offer excuse after excuse. The thought of killing the lizard, even though he hates it, seems like it would be impossible because he can't imagine life without it. He begins to, to argue with the, the angel that, that he could do it some other time. That, then he starts to rationalize. Well, the, the lizard fell asleep. It's, it's not really a bother anymore. Or then he, he starts to say that, you know, I, I, killing is pretty dramatic. Why don't we just have this gradual process? And finally, he, he just breaks down and says, you know, I'm not in great health right now. Wait till I get better and I can deal with this. But right now is just not the time. And at every excuse, the angel responds, no. No, death is the only way. The gradual process will not work. There is no other time. And during that, the, the lizard's voice grows louder and more urgent, insisting that, that if the angel kills him, that the man would die as well. The man begins to scream out, saying, I know that this will kill me. If you kill the lizard, it will kill me too. And the angel, in a, in a very insightful move, says, no. But imagine if it did. Supposing it did. And that moment of clarity for the, the ghost man says, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Dying actually would be, would be better than having this thing with me throughout. And he begins to allow the angel to put the beast to death. You know, that story uh, illustrates the struggle that we face when we're confronted with Christianity. Because Christianity, in, in the gospel, it promises what seems like a life of, of freedom and grace and hope 
And that is all true. But we also have this revelation that we can't enter heaven. We can't go on like we were. And it feels like killing a part of us. It feels like facing death that can be down to the core of who we are. In this letter to the Colossians, Paul writes to them, and indeed even to us, as those who have received grace. But he says that this grace, though wonderful and leading to life, must first pass through death. And we have to ask why. Why is killing the old self necessary? Can't a path be easy and painless? Well, let's turn to this passage now and, and see not just the why, but even the how of what it means to put life to death. And as we turn to that, let's ask God to bless our reading of it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. We know that your word is powerful, that it is like the sharp sword that pierces through uh, bone and marrow, that it gets down to the heart of us, Lord, and um, we are afraid of that. We admit, Lord, we can be afraid of your word, but at the end, we trust you, and we pray that you'll do that work, that surgery that, uh, that transforms us. Use your word to do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage uh, at the very beginning hits you like a slap on the face. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sounds like the most hardcore, ascetic form of Christianity imaginable. There's no half measures. There's no soft encouragement to, you know, try your hardest to stop sinning. Oh, put to death what is sinful in you. In fact, the further you go on in this section, what it, what it reads as is Christianity is a call not simply to a different religion, not simply to worship something new, but it's a call to a whole new way of being human. Describing something that almost seems like a different species. Verse 9 and 10 he says, put off the old self. But, you know, the word self sometimes can get confusing in our modern way we think about self. We could even translate it, put off the old humanity and put on new humanity. To be a Christian is so dramatic. It's like becoming a new humanity. And that comes only through death, put to death, what is earthly in you. This change is so great that at the end of our passage in verse 11, he says that your identity now doesn't fit into any of the categories that the world uses to, to uh, identify people. He, he says things in these, uh, these, these terms that almost should encompass all of humanity. You know, like filling out those forms that, you know, you check all the boxes. Which one is you? Paul's saying you can't check off the box that says Greek or Jew. You can't check off circumcised or uncircumcised, white or black or Hispanic or Republican or Democrat or educated or not educated. You're not fitting into the categories. That, you're not fitting into the way that we normally chop up humanity. 
You're different. Something dramatic has happened. It's so extreme. And that extreme is hard for us under, to understand in the 21st century. Because everywhere we go, everything we hear about religion is that it's private and personal. We have to keep it out of the public sphere. Don't bring it into the workplace. Don't bring it into the conversations you have with your neighbor. It's fine for you to have your own personal faith, but, but really it shouldn't impact the public square. That's not the way that the New Testament views Christianity. Paul, in other places, will say anyone who is in Christ has entered new creation. Here, specifically, this dramatic transformation that is all of your being. Paul keeps affirming that, that is exactly what happens when you come to Christ. You are now, you have entered into a new humanity. That's why there is, throughout this whole section, a subtle allusion to Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve, the story that we heard read this morning. We even can see at the end of Colossians uh, chapter 3 that he winds up talking about husbands and wives, and it seems like a random move unless you realize he's all the way has been working through this new humanity picture from Genesis. Now think back to that story. And most of us know the details, that Adam and Eve were in the garden and were naked. It's the stuff that makes the Sunday school kids giggle, right? But the point isn't that necessarily that they were there without clothes. For we see in creation they are clothed with glory and dignity. They're clothed with this, this worth that God gave them, being the image of God. And then, when they reject God, when they reject him and go their own way, they replace the garment of glory with the garment of shame. Even while they were naked, in this garment of shame, they, they make a feeble attempt to cover over their shame. And so they create these, these clothes out of fig leaves. But if you're paying attention to that narrative, sometimes we, we can miss the fact God comes in judgment to Adam and Eve, and they start hiding themselves. This is after they put those fig leaves on. What did Adam say? He says, I was afraid because I was naked. Well, he already had fig leaves on. But he knew he was naked. There was something deeper about his being that had changed. There was shame there. God, at the end of that section in chapter 3 of Genesis, gives him a promise of hope, a promise of restoration. And as they receive that promise, even though they have their man-made clothes, we're told that God then covers them. Covers them with garments of skin. And this idea that, that what he's promising them is that he will dress them back into a humanity, a restoration of glory. 
Colossians 3.10, when you are clothed with this new humanity, when you're clothed with Christ, you are, in verse 10, being renewed in the knowledge after the image of God. What's the point? What's the point of, of Paul going back to that? What's the point of me bringing it up here? Well, I want us to see that that old self, the thing that seems like our natural self, the, the thing that seems so ingrained in who we are, that actually is the imposter. The, the self of sin, the self that's in rebellion against God, the self that so often feels like the real me, the me I don't want to give up, the, the me that, that feels like death to leave into, into the call of Christ. No, that's actually not how I was supposed to live. It's not who I was created to be. That's the horrible stain of shame that we carry around with, it, with us. You were not created to live like this. You were created for glory. And we have traded that away for garments of shame. Christ is offering this new humanity to us through the gospel. He's bringing us into this new humanity. But it must come through death. Here's the thing. Paul insists here that we bring this life to death. And we have to ask, how? How are we to put the life to death, this old life, this old self. And the thing is, we read through this chapter and he doesn't seem to give us instructions. In fact, if we look back to chapter 2, we're told what not to do. We're, we're told not, it doesn't come through uh, asceticism. It doesn't come through severity to the body. It doesn't come through keeping law upon law. He says that the, the practice of do not touch, do not taste, that that's not the way. It has no power in transforming us. So we're left with the question, how? How am I supposed to mortify, to put to death this old self? Well, I want to look at three things that are embedded in this passage that give us a guide to, to killing this sin in us. The first is that we must realize that if we are a Christian, the old life has already been put to death. That is the work of God through Christ. That is already true of you. This, I think, is a truth that we often overlook. In a Christianity that, that focuses a lot on what the, what the cross has done for us, we sometimes overlook what the cross has done to us. It's a wonderful truth to say that the cross has put my sin to death, that it has absolved me of all guilt, that I can objectively stand before the Father in heaven, not on anything that I've done, but know that the cross has accomplished my salvation. But Scripture goes further than that. Paul has been going further than that. The cross not only deals with the guilt, it also changes us. It transforms us. He will say in other places, I am crucified with 
Christ. When I come to Christ, I am so united to him that I'm actually united to his cross. You'll say in chapter 2 of Colossians that, that whenever you are baptized, you are baptized into his death. And the whole, the whole logic of, that, of the section we're in says, if you have now died with him, put to death those things in your life. In the same way, he can talk about the resurrection. We're so united to his resurrection that we now have new life. What scripture in some places can call being born again. A change that, that goes deep inside us, down to our very nature. That we have this death and this new life, this regeneration. Just as the resurrection gives us this new life, we have died with Christ. I really am different. You really are different when we come to Christ. Again, that's why Paul can say, if you have died with him, now put to death the old life. And this is the point of the, the last sermon in this series. It needs to be repeated, though. It needs to be first and foremost in our understanding of it because we cannot put to death the old life apart from Christ. It only comes through Christ. He is all in all. It's always his work. So that's the first point. It's Christ's work done to us. And our job as Christians now is to live in light of it, to live consistently in that because we keep toggling back to the old life. We keep going back to the way things used to be, pretending as if we are still alive, pretending as if those things that we have died to now still hold sway in our lives. And so he says, no, you're dead to that. Put it to death. Put it to death. That leads us to the second point, how do we do this? We begin to put it to death by seeing sin for what it really is. To see sin in its fullness, to even see the sin beneath the sin. To borrow a phrase from one of our MA church planters, Dan Heron, he talks about a pathology, doing a pathology of our sin. It's a great word. Tracing back the, the results back to the causes. Seeing the connection. Going deeper. You know, if you have a fever, you have a high temperature, it is foolish of you to only try to cool down your skin. You're not getting to what is really at the cause, at the root of the problem. This is why Paul, in these lists, that's what he's getting at. You look at the, the first list that he, he gives here of, of these sins. The, the first list in verse 5, you, you take a glance at it, and, and it looks like he's almost being redundant. He's, he's listing all these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, desire. You know, are you just saying the same thing? But if you notice, he's actually expanding our understanding of sin. He's going from these things that are blatant outward acts and he's getting to the core. He's getting to the root. 
Let's look at the, the sin, uh, each of these. Look at the first one. The first word is sexual immorality. That, that word almost always means the very specific sexual intercourse outside of marriage. In fact, sometimes you can see it in, in uh, situations where it is uh, talking about prostitution. Now, if we stopped here, it would be easy to feel self-righteous. We can, we can whittle it down, even maybe if we've had sex outside of marriage, we can maybe contextualize it and shrink it and, and put it into something that we've gotten past. All for us uh, as a way to avoid the heart of it. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He goes further. He presses on. He includes the word impurity. And in this context, we can see that that means all the other things that are per perhaps sexual sins that are included in God's law. But then he presses on even further, passions, the, the drives in our hearts. Then he goes even further, evil desires. So that now no longer are we just talking about the outward acts. We're even including things like our fantasy life. And then finally, Paul gets to this word covetousness, which could be, could be translated greed. This insatiable desire that always wants more. Paul, you see, is drilling down past the obvious sins. He's drilling down past the things that just seem to be maybe the outgrowth or the symptoms to get to the underlying disease. He talks about covetousness, and then he defines what that is. And his definition might surprise us. He says covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is not simply setting up an idol, a fake god to worship. It is very similar to greed. It is this desire to be fulfilled and to look to things other than God, other than the true God, to fulfill, to give you what you need. And there you see the driving force behind the actions, the motivator, and Paul reveals that it's worship. It's as we worship and serve these other gods that it changes us and it transforms us and it spills out into all these other things that we act. Worship is so deeply ingrained in us. And believe me, it's true not only for those who are religious, but it's true of those who are irreligious. All of us point to those things that we think will fill us, that will give us what we crave that are not God. Paul's pointing out that even when we change what we worship, even when we become Christians and worship the true God, that we go back to these old idols, looking to them to, satis for, to, them to satisfy us. You know, we must do a pathology. We must look at the manifestations to see these sins there, but not stop there, trace it back to the idolatry. We can see him expanding the understanding of sin in verse 5. And then almost in, in the list he gives in verse 8, we almost see it going the other way, from the inward to the outward. He talks about anger and wrath and malice, maybe things that are, are bubbling under the surface, but then it spills out into things that are outward, slander obscene talk, lying, 
speech, speech that is hurtful to others. Things that maybe we'll just marginalize as, as one little thing. Maybe I was in a moment. Maybe it was not really true of me. But, but if we spent the time to trace it back, we see this underlying anger in us. And again, we can't, we, we're not avoiding sin when we shift to other things. When he talks about obscene talk, you know, sometimes we get these, these silly taboos about the words themselves. I don't care if you're using the word fiddlesticks or son of a gun. If you're tracing it back to anger that's in your heart, you're not self-righteous that you've all of a sudden avoided something taboo. You have to confront the wickedness and the evil in you. In the same way, sometimes we say things that really don't have any connection to anger or malice in our hearts. We've got to get rid of the taboos. Scripture's working with core problems in us that need to be repented of that are true sins. In this context, it's words that tear down others. These expressions of malice that can come out in maybe sometimes even the sweetest ways that we articulate things but are really there to stab and to wound others. They're really expressions of malice. If we're really going to put sin to death, we need to trace sin to its root. And in doing that, we need to start asking the questions, why? Why is that coming out in me? Why am I being drawn to these things? And that should be in all sorts of our behaviors. Why am I spending lots of money on frivolous things? Why am I eating too much? Why am I starving myself? Why am I turning to pornography? Why am I anxious and not sleeping? Why do I have this compulsion that I need to succeed? Why do I have this fear that I, I, I can't fail? Why do I have this fear that I'm going to be alone? This is the, the work of identifying our idols. You see, if we just stop short and talk about these outward things, lying or worrying or greed or something like that that we can, we can put our hands on and say, let's just stop those things, well, the idol is going to maybe allow you to stop it there, but it's going to spill out into some other aspect of your life because you won't have really dealt with it. But of course, that's not enough. Mere identification isn't enough. Because the insidious thing about idols is they look attractive to us. We turn to them again and again because we think they work. Because we think they will do exactly what they promise, which is to provide a need that we think is core to us. It's too attractive. Identification isn't enough. So thirdly, we need not simply to identify. We need to expose the idol for what it is in its ugliness and its oppression. Idols aren't just subtle motivators under the surface. They are slave masters that seek to dominate our lives. But they will leave us in emptiness. That's the nature of idolatry. It's about control. Romans 1 tells us that that's why humanity turns to idols. Because we want to be in control. We want to control our circumstances. 
We want to get what we want. And idols seem to promise a level of control. Remember, idolatry is turning to something other than God to give you what you think you need. It promises that if you serve it, it will provide. And of course, when you don't serve it, or when you don't serve well enough, it's not the idol that you point out has failed. It's you because you haven't served well enough. You are always the problem. You worship control. And, it, and the God of control promises you security. But the thing is, you can't get control out of all the variables in your life. You try to. You try to manipulate those around you. You try to, to control the circumstances uh, of everything that, that is in your life. But in, inevitably, there will be something outside of your control that harms you, that destroys your plans. But sadly, we don't see the emptiness in the God of control. We feel guilty that we didn't control the one thing that was out of our control. And it forces us to serve more and more. You see, the thing is, we think we're the ones in control in idolatry. But it's really the idols controlling us. We are enslaved. We can see this in the words that Paul uses he uses the word like passion. Passion in here is not simply enthusiasm. It's not wrong to be passionate about things. But passion, in the word he uses in this, in this section, is, is the connotation of being carried away under the influence of something else so that you're not in control. Covetousness. It's that word greed, this this unquenchable thirst for more that no matter how much you fill it up, it will never be satisfied. Sexual desire. It's this, it's this pleasure that you keep seeking but will never feel like enough. It will always leave you empty, thirsting for more. You know, I've, I've heard people talk about their, their struggle with pornography and use the words like, well, I gave in, but it was only because the tension was building up so much. As if you think that, that it's going to get easier, that you're going to have more energy to fight the temptation if you just give in here and there. That's not how it works. You don't get more energy. You're giving it more control. It's going to actually exert more power in your life. The same thing with anger. You know, venting isn't the release and to be able to say, oh, whew, glad that got off my chest now that I spilled my wrath out on somebody. No, anger is going to be cumulative. It's going to build up in you. And the more you turn to venting, the angrier you are going to be. You're not controlling. You are being controlled. We need to see the futility. We need to see the oppression of our idols. Because in our eyes, they always seem so good and attractive. They seem like the very thing that are, is going to give us what we need. We must put the sin to death. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, says it so succinctly and clearly, probably the clearest thing John Owen has ever written. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
be killing sin or it will be killing you. You know, the sins of the old self, that old life, it's going to die. It's going to die because, as it says here in this passage, the wrath of God is coming for those things. And it will either die as Christ destroys it, or it will die now as you put it to death. Have you been treating your sin with kid gloves? Have you been dealing with it gently, thinking that it's not so bad? Have you had that compulsion to say, but I, I really can't get to it now. I'm too busy. What I'm doing is too important. I, I have to keep feeding this idol. I'll deal with it later when I start to plateau in my career, when I get to where I want to be, when I get to that relationship, when I find satisfaction. I'll stop. But right now, I kind of want to have it hanging around. Have we been dealing with it too gently? We're called to a new life. We're called to a new humanity with the grace of the gospel. But that grace must bring death. It must bring an outworking of what is already true of you through what Christ has done on the cross. Put to death the sin that's in you. It requires a pathology, tracing back your sins to your idols, exposing them for what they really are. But there's one last key. One last key to, to putting our idols to death, putting that old life to death. And it requires not simply seeing the ugliness of the sin, but also seeing the grace and the goodness of the life Christ has to offer. That is, in fact, the greatest thing, our greatest gift to living out this new self. Nothing will kill your thirst for approval like grasping the full worth and affirmation and love that God lavishes on you that's demonstrated by the cross itself. Nothing will will kill your, your yearning for control, the, the everything that you want to manipulate and, and be anxious over. Nothing kills that idol like turning to praise the one who is in control and understanding that he and his plan is far better than anything because he has proven his love for you. Nothing kills that drive to succeed because we need to validate our lives and, and to say it is worth it. Nothing kills that idol more than looking at Christ and his wonderful gift of calling you to serve in his kingdom, giving you dignity and worth and even a role in the body of Christ. Nothing kills all those things that seek to offer you a better life than turning to the greatest life that God has for you. Look, putting to death life is scary. I like that ghost man in C.S. Lewis's story who, who loathes the lizard and yet knows he needs to put it to death. We line up reason after reason not to deal with sin, not to address it, to keep it alive. You know, the end of that story is remarkable because he does let the angel kill that lizard. And as he does, it doesn't kill the man. But this ghost man becomes solider and solider 
brighter and stronger. He becomes the true, glorious, dignified person that he was created to be. He becomes the image of God in a very amazing way. But interestingly enough, the angel doesn't even kill the lizard. The lizard falls to the ground and then transforms into this beautiful stallion. Lewis tells us that the lizard was lust. Lust, he says, is a poor, weak, whimpering thing compared to the richness and energy of desire which arise when lust has been killed. You see, all those things that, that idols prey upon that drive us, you know, it's working with material that is actually good. Christianity is not anti-sex. It's not anti-righteous anger. Those can be good things, but, but when they're made into gods, they become things that destroy us and twist and become even weaker and uglier. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Are you allowing it to fester? Are you putting off dealing with it because it can seem too painful? Are you afraid? Christ has crucified you to sin. He's put you to death. But he also gives you the resurrection hope of new life. It's all yours as you turn to Christ. You know, the truth is, we're not going to utterly root out all sin in our lives. It will be with us until the day we die. But day after day, week after week, as we continue to put it to death, we get to taste the richness and the goodness and the promise of that life that is ours. And that is a life filled with hope and joy and freedom. Be putting it to death so that you can now start to experience life. Let's pray.